Well, I'm very excited to be here today with you all. I want to start our time together this morning by wishing all the mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day. And uh, to make it a little personal, I'd like to personally thank my wife, Judy, for being just a wonderful mother to my three boys. And uh, I love you and I thank you for that. And uh, also for my mother. I had the privilege last weekend to go back east to Virginia and be with my mom for her 80th birthday party last Saturday. So the memory is still fresh. And I got to tell you, my mother was my biggest cheerleader my entire life. And I thank her for that. Just to give you a little idea of the level of her encouragement and cheerleadership. I played sports all the way growing up. And by the time I got to high school and college, played football and my mom and dad would come to every game that I had, but my mom would sit in one section of the bleachers and my dad would sit in a section far away because my mom was so obnoxious and yelling in support of her son, who she was sure was the absolute best player on the field. I could hear her from the field yelling at me, telling me what to do, congratulating me, warning the boys across from me what was going to happen. So mom, thanks for being my cheerleader and happy Mother's Day to you. Well, we're wrapping up a series today on forgiveness. And in the past weeks, we've heard some wonderful messages from both Steve and Don. And the messages were um, dealing with forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness, uh, the key to forgiving freely, the art of forgiveness, and also the tragic results if we find ourselves in a position where we don't forgive others. And today I want to speak to the power of forgiveness both for those we choose to forgive and for ourselves. First, I'd like to share a little memory of mine. We lived in Denver, and uh, my boys were younger. I think my oldest son was probably in fourth grade. And we had bought a house, and we were, I had refinished the basement, put a couple more rooms down there. And once we had put the walls up and divided things up, we were left with a big playroom in the middle of the downstairs. But... Because of the budget restraints, the light fixtures in this playroom for our boys were just a simple little white ceramic with a light bulb, no covering, no dome or anything. So we had a strict rule with the boys that they could play and go nuts and have fun in the playroom, but they were not to throw the football or the basketball or any of the other balls around the room. So and they, of course, nodded their head to these rules and agreed to them. So within a couple of weeks, I was sitting upstairs doing some reading and uh, all of a sudden, I hear the little footsteps coming up the stairs from the basement. And it's my oldest son. And he looks across the room at me. His head drops. And he walks slowly over to me. And by the time he's about halfway from the stairwell to where I was sitting, he just bursts into tears. He starts sobbing. He gets over, crawls up in my lap, and he's just sobbing emotionally. And I'm trying to comfort him. What's wrong? What's wrong? Finally, he catches his breath. And he says, Dad, I threw the ball downstairs, and I broke the light. And then he burst into tears again. So I tried to comfort him, and we kind of got his emotions under control. Um, and I said, okay, you learned something today, didn't you? He says, yeah, yeah, I won't ever do it again. I won't ever do it again. So I took my son, and we went downstairs, and together with a dustpan and a broom, we cleaned up all the broken glass from the light bulb. But I really was struck by his reaction to what he had done. And it's followed me the rest of my life, and I know I share in some of the emotions that he felt that day quite often. Because I'm convinced that two of the most powerful emotions that we feel and we deal with as humans are shame and guilt. 
And I think it's even stronger in males than it is in females. And what my son felt that day just undid him, brought him to tears. He knew he wasn't supposed to do something, and he did it, and he suffered the consequences for it. And the amount of shame and guilt that he felt when he came and approached me was only matched by my telling him that it was okay, basically that he was forgiven, and that we would make it better together. So we went down and we got it all cleaned up. That powerful emotion of shame and guilt, they're debilitating. They crush our spirits. They can lead a spiral into a depression. And they just undo us. And the only answer, the only match to those emotions is forgiveness and grace. And that forgiveness and grace needs to come from those that we've wronged or disappointed. And it's the only way to reinstate ourselves as individuals and remove the guilt and the shame. Our passage today paints a vivid picture of the power of forgiveness. And it's in the context of Jesus and his number one disciple, which was Peter. Our passage is John 21, verses 15 to 19. I invite you to join me as I read it. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. To really get what has taken place here, we need a little context for this passage and a little backstory on Peter and Jesus' relationship. As far as the context, they are just sitting down and had just completed a meal. But that meal was on a beach because Peter and his disciple, Peter and a couple of the disciples, decided they needed to go fishing. So they got in their fishing boat and went out onto the lake. They spent several hours fishing, they caught nothing. So they're coming in from the lake, defeated, no fish, and it says they're about 100 or more yards offshore, and they see a person on the beach. And they don't know who it is, but as they start to get closer and closer, John realizes that it's Jesus, and he lets the rest of the disciples know. And as soon as Peter hears those words, that Jesus is on the beach and he's right in front of him, it says Peter took up his cloak, jumped out of the boat, swam ashore, and sprinted down the beach to Jesus. So that's that's a 100-yard swim and a sprint on the beach with wet clothes. Peter was determined to get to Jesus. And I don't know if you can imagine knowing what has happened the weeks before with Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and resurrection, and then what preceded that between Jesus and Peter. But Peter was pretty anxious and determined to get to Jesus. When he gets there, Jesus, by the time the rest of the disciples come in, Jesus says, let's have a meal. And they say, well, we don't have any fish. He says, cast your nets to the other side of the boat. 
and they pull in this huge catch, 150-some fish. Jesus gets some bread and some fish, and they have a meal. And I love that, that Jesus just knows us, and he knows people. He knew the anxiety and the determination and the need that Peter had to be with Jesus, as well as the excitement of the other disciples, because this was only the third time they'd seen him since his resurrection. But he said, let's just pause. Let's have a meal. Let's reconnect a little bit. Give them a chance to calm down and have some context. And that's where we pick up in our passage where it says, after the meal. Now that we have that context for our verse, let's also take some time and look back at Peter and Jesus' relationship and what Jesus meant to Peter and what Peter meant to Jesus. So Peter was a follower of John the Baptist, actually, and he and his brother Andrew were fishermen. And the first encounter that they had with Jesus was Jesus calling the fishermen to the shore, and he tells them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And that was the initiation of their relationship with each other. And Peter was one of the first disciples chosen by Jesus. Later, Jesus calls Peter the rock. He gives him the name Petrus, meaning rock. And he said, I'm going to choose you as a rock to use you as a cornerstone to build my followers, and later on to be what we know as Christianity. Peter was the first one to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and to call him the son of the living God. Peter had many miraculous catches. And he was the one when all, else, all were terrified of a storm on a lake when they were in a boat and they saw Jesus walking across the water. Peter was the one, when everyone else was terrified, that said, Jesus, can I come out and be with you? Can I come and walk on the water too? And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water. He only made three steps because he got scared and he looked down at the water and he started to sink. But he got three steps in. Peter made as many mistakes and misjudgments as he ever did any good. But whatever he did, he went after it with his whole heart. He tried hard and he listened carefully to Jesus' words, but sometimes he just didn't get it. But when that happened, Jesus always made time to explain it again and make sure that Peter got the message that he was talking about. Towards the end, when they were in the upper room and Jesus was predicting his death and the denial of everyone of Jesus, Peter was the one that promised above all overs that he would never leave Jesus. And he even said he vowed unto death that he would stay and support and to be with Jesus. He was the one that attacked the Roman guard in the garden and cut his ear off in defense of Jesus. Simon Peter was poised to lead the disciples and the new Christian church forward. He was Jesus' number one guy. He was going to be the man. And then, sadly, after Jesus was arrested and Peter and another disciple followed the crowd and the Romans, over the next few hours, three different times, Peter was asked if he knew Jesus or if he was one of his followers. And each time, Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. I can only imagine 
he denied, and he said he didn't know him out of fear for himself and the emotions of the situation. But I want to take just a moment and see if you, with me, can just start to grasp what the emotions that Peter must have dealt with as he heard the words coming out of his mouth, I don't know him. Not once, not twice, but three times. It's hard to imagine the amount of guilt and shame that Peter must have felt. And then he had to deal with over that long weekend before the resurrection. And even in the weeks to come, leading up to the time of our passage this morning. I know the times in my life where I have felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt for actions, for the way that I hurt people, whether I intended to or not. It's a sickening feeling. I think if you dive into the well of your life and emotions, you can pull some times where you have at least tasted a little bit of the power of that emotion of shame and guilt. In our passage, Peter sees Jesus. He swims and he sprints and he gets to Jesus. I can only imagine how many times he whispered to himself and ended up yelling at the top of his lungs, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Jesus. And it doesn't give this description in the passage, but using my imagination, I just imagine by the time Peter gets to Jesus, he just buries his head in his chest and he's sobbing, saying, I'm sorry. Just like my son did when he was dealing with shame and guilt. And I think when we can put our imaginary eyes on that situation, it helps us understand a little bit more the importance of what Jesus did next. After the meal, after Jesus had given them a time to calm down, to catch their breath, and to reacquaint with each other. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times. Personally, I think that's to give Peter the opportunity to allow himself to be forgiven and reinstated for each one of those denials that he did of Jesus. Later in the passage, the foreshadowing of Peter's death while serving Jesus came to fruition after he had served the church for so long and he was, he was crucified, but they gave him the choice of how he wanted to be crucified and he said he wanted to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die the same death that his Savior died. In our passage, Jesus' final word for Peter is, follow me. And this is his words, follow me, are the stamp of forgiveness and grace and reinstatement of Simon Peter, who would go on to become the leader of his disciples and the Christian church and the Christian movement for time. Follow me was a direct reference to the first words that Peter, Simon at that point, had heard from Jesus, where Jesus saw them on a boat and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus started something with Simon Peter in his life, and he had a plan for him. And even though Peter blew it, Jesus said, we're not done yet. I still have work for you. I still need you to be a fisher of men. At this point, as strong as the emotions of shame and guilt that Peter had dealt with, 
Can you imagine the, the release and the feeling of relief that he must have felt as Jesus continues his commission that he's given to Peter? He says, we're not done. I forgive you, I love you, and I need you to keep doing what we started to do together. That offering of grace and forgiveness by Jesus lifts Peter's burden of guilt and shame. What power grace and forgiveness has. That's what empowered Peter to lead the followers of Jesus and to accomplish what he did for the early church and for the gospel. We are fortunate. We have the opportunity as followers of Jesus to offer the same kind of grace and forgiveness to those that have wronged us or hurt us. And as we do so, we have the power to conquer shame and guilt with forgiveness and grace and mercy. I want to kind of wrap things up today with, with a little explanation of the, the hymn that I love and I think most people do. It's Amazing Grace. I've heard so many people say that, hey, at my funeral, play Amazing Grace. And I've done many memorial services where that song is sung, and it's beautiful and powerful. But I think it becomes even more powerful and poignant when you know the backstory to the hymn Amazing Grace. The author was John Newton, and John Newton was born into a sailor family. His father was a sailor, and he grew up in, on boats and had kind of an adventurous and uh, just a little dirty past growing up as a sailor. He wound up getting involved in the slave trade from England down to North Africa, and he brought many slaves in on three different ships that he commanded. And as time went on, he became one of those people that just became a real jerk. And at one point, his crew was so abused and so intolerant of him that they left him in Africa. And as the, the story goes, his father back in England had to send a boat to find him. And as that boat found him in Africa and was bringing him back, they got caught in a storm off the coast of Ireland. And the ship almost sunk. And John Newton, had a come to Jesus moment, and he just prayed out and called out to God that I don't want to die, please help me. And as the story goes, miraculously, the cargo in the ship shifted just enough to cover a hole in the hull that was flooding the boat, and the ship was able to make it in. And to his word, John Newton accepted Christ that day as a product of that miracle that happened at sea. Things didn't change quickly for John Newton. He went on for another 20 or 30 years in the slave trade, but he got out. He says, the more and more I got closer to God and the more I read the Bible, I realized the atrocities of what I was doing and I couldn't go on doing this anymore. And he started dealing with guilt and shame for what he had done. He asked for forgiveness. He felt that guilt and shame removed and he entered into the pastorate. And after he was in the pastorate, he started writing hymns. And that's where he wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. He knew who he was and what he'd been doing. And he knew that he needed grace and forgiveness. And when he received it, it gave him the freeness and the power and the ability to write the hymns that we still sing today. 34 years after writing Amazing Grace, he also wrote Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. It was a small book 
and he started passing it around all of the officials and the leaders in the country that he knew. And he ran into William Wilberforce, who was a politician at that time, and between him and John Newton and that book, Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade, they were able to see, before John Newton died, the abolition of the slave trade in the UK. Yet another powerful story of what forgiveness offers and how it covers shame and guilt and gives us freedom and forgiveness. We all have that power to offer grace and forgiveness to others and free them from guilt and shame. I hope as you have opportunity to do that, you will look inside yourself and try to offer that freedom and forgiveness to those we encounter and those that wrong us. And when we do that, we act like Jesus. Amen.